Wow, I have enjoyed worshiping the Lord tonight and know that you have as well. Last week I just did a real quick overview of the first seven chapters of Revelation. And we're trying to catch back up after we took a break this summer. And so tonight I want to look at Revelation 8 and 9 with you. I am um, entitling this message and some of its review of what we looked at before we all took a break for the summer, but I'm entitling the message, The Scariest Prophecy. I don't know of anything more frightening and that I've seen more movies made about on a secular line as well as a biblical line when it comes to biblical themes as I have the Great Tribulation and the end time. We're living in days today that um, people are frightened. This evening I got an email from one of the godliest men I know. He's a businessman, loves the Lord, very committed to Christ, and wrote me a lengthy email, and I'll just have to take time to think through and how I'm going to answer and reply to his email. He's not a part of our congregation. As a matter of fact, he's not a part of, of the Assemblies of God, and he's not even in our state. But he shared with me this evening, he says, you know, we've always prayed that abortion would be overturned, that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, that the lives of babies would be protected. He said, after watching the news, and I'm just giving you some of his email, he says, I'm very frightened that if this happens, we will have a civil war in America. This is not a time to be frightened. This is why we're studying the revelation. This is a time where, for some reason, men's hearts are failing them with fear. Jesus told us about that. This evening, just before the service, I got a call, and, you know, it will remain anonymous, but we will pray later tonight of a young dad and young husband that tried to take his life this evening. You've got every reason in the world to live. And this this can be, and I believe will be, the church's finest hour. You remember, we've talked about this over and over as we've gone through, that there is promised a blessing to those who will read and a blessing to those who study. As I remind you and I remind people all the time, I believe Jesus could come tonight. <clears throat> I believe he could come before this service is over but he might not come for another 500 years. I just don't know. What I do know is that while I'm here, I'm going to live an overcoming life. Whether that's through living out my life as a living sacrifice, or literally giving my life as a sacrifice, as Jim Elliott did, and Nate Saint did in trying to reach the Aka Indians, as Christians are doing in various parts of the world tonight. Took you back to just for a moment to a passage we looked at last week and we looked at at the close of the summer. Revelation 7:14 talks about the saints, and he says, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. 
They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Now, you've got to think about that for just a moment. Have you ever bled on something? I've had the cleaners tell me we're not going to be able to get that out. It's blood. I intentionally, I don't wear colored t-shirts much, but I intentionally wore a, a red t-shirt tonight. I hope it's okay, Becky. And I sure hope it matches. But I wore a red t-shirt tonight because if you wash something in the blood, it doesn't become white. It becomes, as we say in the South, burnt. But when we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are made whiter than snow. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Hallelujah. And so even those believers who die in the great tribulation, the Bible has some powerful and wonderful things to say about them. Now, just as a reminder, we talked about tribulation being the trials of everyday life. The Bible talks about the trials of everyday life. They can be tribulation. The Bible speaks of two prophetic times that are coming upon the earth, and that's the great tribulation, and that's the passage that we're dealing with here tonight in um, Revelations 8 and 9. But we're also, there's another time coming at the very end of the age called the day of the Lord. We'll deal with that when we get to that part of Revelation. You remember we talked about prophetic revelation. Prophetic revelation is Jesus is coming. We know that. Prophetic interpretation is, well, the Bible says that Christ is coming. Therefore, at the conclusion of what the Bible has said, there's going to happen, Jesus will return. Some people believe that that is going to be before the tribulation. This is interpretation. Some people believe that's going to be in the middle of the tribulation. Some people believe that's going to be after the tribulation. That's interpretation. Prophetic speculation is Jesus is coming tonight, so you better go home and get ready. You know, and if somebody tells you that, you know not to believe them. We know Jesus is coming. I happen to believe after years and years, over 40 years of studying this book, that Jesus is coming before the Great Tribulation. I made this statement at the close of the summer. I'll make it again tonight. Somebody asked me one time, says, what if you're wrong? What if he doesn't come until the middle or the after? What are you going to do then? I go, I'm just going to go, I was wrong. What else can you do? I just go, oh, I was wrong. I'm sorry. You know, however, I'm not going to turn my back upon Jesus Christ. I'm not going to deny the Lord. There are believers today suffering intense persecution. So what I'd like you to do is just join me in prayer tonight as we kind of do a review of seven and go through nine. Because this is not meant to scare us. It's scary, but it's not meant to scare us. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant to give us hope. It's meant to give us encouragement. Father, I thank you for 63 years of life. I thank you that for the overwhelming majority of those years, Lord, I have been a passionate follower of yours. You did something amazing in me. Like David, I am not perfect. These friends of mine, 
my brothers and sisters in Christ, this congregation, Lord, that you've called me to pastor, they're not perfect. But Lord, I testify before you tonight that our hearts are set on following you and loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we're asking you this evening that you'll help us to behold wonderful things out of your word, that you will strengthen us in our inner man by the Holy Spirit, that as we looked at Sunday and the Sunday before last, that you'll help us to comprehend the breadth and the width and the height and the depth of your love and the wealth that we have in Christ, the wealth and truth, the wealth and power, the wealth and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that we may walk this walk of faith, not fearing tribulation and not fearing the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead, Lord, living ready for your return. And everybody that agreed said, amen, amen. In September of 1976, some of my ministerial colleague friends that we were all studying for the ministry together, we had finished the class and we all happened to live in the same apartment area and Becky and I hadn't been married very long and we were standing in the parking lot and we were talking about the possibilities of the man who was running for president. He was born again. He spoke openly of being born again like nobody we had ever known or no one that our parents had ever known that spoke about being born again. And we had great hopes that if Jimmy Carter was elected president that a revival was going to break out in our land. Instead, we saw a dark time, and I happen to be one that believes that President Carter is a good man, but we happened to be, see a dark time descend upon our country. We thought that Jimmy Carter's election after the scandal of Watergate and after the, the defeat of Jerry Ford and a nasty campaign, that somehow or another this man that came out of nowhere. One of my friends that I went to college with, Bob's mother, met Jimmy Carter. He walked up to her and introduced himself and says, hi, I'm Jimmy Carter. I'm from Georgia and I'm running for president. She laughed at him. Bob and I happened to be roommates. And when it come out that he was running for president, she was so ashamed that she had laughed at him. Today, we're still good friends and we think about and laugh about those memories sometime. We remember when Jimmy Carter somehow or another disappointed the nation and was voted out of office. Ronald Reagan came into office. Ronald Reagan came in on a campaign of pro-life, of making America great again, of building, and for eight years, it seemed like America was on the upswing. And then America did another turn, and followed by eight years, uh, four years of a president that took us into war, led us successfully through that war, and then was voted out of office by a man that was accused of all kinds of infidelities and all kinds of lying. And then we went through a period of eight years where there were whitewater investigations. There was not only Monica Lewinsky, but all the other investigations. There was things that were said that should have never been said. Our children, our four children were very small at the time. And we had to monitor the news like you would have to monitor your television because they would come and ask us about words that they would hear on the television that they didn't need to know yet. 
That was followed by another eight years of a president who tried to overturn a lot of that, and we were scared to death. It was a frightening moment on 9-11. It was a very frightening moment when those two planes flew into the towers, when one flew into the Pentagon, and then another plane who's with a woman from Wyandotte whose husband was on that plane who said that famous statement, let's roll, and it crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We marveled. Immediately that day as we watched what happened, I remember calling the staff in my office and said, I don't know who will show up. There was no way for us to communicate with you the way we communicate now. We threw open the doors of our church. Our church was packed out with standing room only, the people that came to join us in the community to pray. There was a joint citywide meeting. I was asked to speak at that. I was doing a missions conference up in the northern part of the state. I remember driving back and wondering how many people would actually come to a city meeting where the gospel was going to be preached. And again, the place was packed out. For a while, it seemed like America was really going to go through a change and have a revival. We saw Democrats and Republicans standing on the door, on the steps of the Capitol singing, God bless America. Do you remember those days? And then we had eight years of a president that was elected that we thought would bring about somehow or another a greater racial healing and a greater racial understanding. I preached a message, if you remember. You can still have it. I wrote a letter to President Obama, and I read that letter to the church as a sermon on that Sunday morning, assuring him that we would pray for him, assuring him that we wanted him to be successful assuring him that we believed in the equality, but we also believed in a nation of multiple races and that we prayed for his success. And instead, what we saw happen, through no fault of his own, I believe, we saw that there was greater racial division that showed up than ever before. I have a chart I could show you later this evening if you wanted to, that America is more segregated tonight than it ever has been before. But the segregation is different in America right now. The segregation is not a racial segregation as much as it is a political segregation. Conservatives are leaving the state of Colorado because of the legalization and the huge marijuana farms that are growing there. And this is happening where conservatives and liberals are beginning to to separate rather than live together and be as neighbors. It's no secret now It's safer to discuss religion at the Thanksgiving dinner table than it is to discuss politics. As a matter of fact, my mother-in-law refuses to allow politics to even be discussed in her home during the holidays because of the different views of family members. And now we have a president that somebody needs to take away his cell phone so he's not tweeting all the time. Now we have a president that I must confess to you that I am puzzled at times by his lifestyle, his language, and the way he's lived his life, and then by the people that he's appointing to the Supreme Court. We see an economy that's roaring. We see an economy that right now is putting the rest of the world to shame, has got China on the ropes and China fearful. It's got the European Union on the ropes and fearful. I have friends in all of these places who are involved in businesses that I correspond and talk with, our economy is something to be envied right now. And yet, America is more divided than it's ever been before. Prosperity, politics have not brought about what we hoped would happen in America. And the ultimate American goal, power. 
has not brought about what we hoped would happen in America. You can't build your trust on prosperity. You can't build your trust on power. You can't build your trust on uh, uh, any of these things. You have to put them in Christ. Which leads me to what I want to say to you tonight from Revelations 8 and 9. Because I believe that the revelation is more important to our understanding what's happening in our world today than ever before. When the seventh seal is opened in Revelation chapter 8, heaven is silent for the prayers of God's people. When the seventh seal is open, heaven is silent for the prayers of God's people. It's a silence of mystery. It's a silence of intense waiting. It's a silence that if you read it in the language, in the Greek language, the Koine Greek that John was writing in, he's writing in a descriptive way so that you get the feeling. It's kind of like the metaphors that we use sometimes to describe something to somebody that we want them to know. This frost on the window pane, the candles are all aglow. We're using metaphors to bring about something. There's the glow of a fireplace. He's, there's this intense silence and this mystery. Why is heaven so silent? For the first six chapters, we've read about the marvelous praise of God. We've read about the worship. We've read about the intense prayers of the saints. But what you're seeing here is the very silence of God's sovereignty. It's the same thing that you read in the Old Testament when once in a while you'll read, let all the earth be silent before the Lord. It's the same thing that you read sometime in the Old Testament when you talk about that even the angels are silent before the Lord. Because what you're seeing is everything must wait on God. Everything must wait on God's timing. Everything must wait on God's will. Everything depends upon the sovereignty of God. You see, God is never in any hurry, but it's also a silence of dread. Because what you've just read about in Revelation 7, and it opened up using a t-shirt to kind of help you get the image of, what you have just read about is those saints that have come through the tribulation. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. When I went to Valdosta State University, I was a communications major. We worked with radio. We worked with television. One of the things that we were drilled in over and over, especially in radio, you cannot have more than three seconds of silence. If you have three seconds of silence, people are going to switch stations. They're going to turn you off. Think about how uncomfortable we get in an elevator when everybody is looking up at the top. Think about how uncomfortable it gets when I get in an elevator sometimes and I wait till the doors are closed and it's moving and everybody's looking at the numbers or looking at the top like they've never seen numbers before. And I go, well, how's everybody doing today? And they all jump. Think about the silence that happens. It's so uncomfortable when sometimes when I'm preaching and I really want you to get something, I just stop. You just start getting nervous. <laughs> Has he forgot? <laughs> Has he lost his place? Silence is golden except in church. We want everything loud. We want everything amplified. Don't waste my time, preacher. Say what you've got to say in a few minutes and get us out of here. 
Don't shake your head like I'm supposed to be quiet back there, Melody. That was the wrong place to shake your head. Silence in heaven for 30 minutes. That's an eternity, it feels like, to you and I. But what you're seeing, what you're seeing, and John wants you to get this, Jesus wants you to get this, it's the power of prayer. You're seeing the power and the intensity of prayer that is taking place because there is an incense, there is something rising up before God in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 2. If you want to follow along with me, it should be on the screen. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had them poured out. And then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar, threw it down upon the earth. Thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake And then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blast. And we Gentile Christians today, we ask the question, what does this mean? But the readers of this book, they would have got it right away. I have dear friends that are Messianic Jews. I have dear friends that are unbelieving Jews as far as when it comes to believing that Jesus is the Messiah. There are those, we dealt with this when we talked about the 144,000. There are those that say the 144,000, that they're just Jewish believers. And if that's so, what happens to you and I Gentiles? You know, and I went through showing you 12 squared to the power of 10 cubed. If you remember that, how this is a, how it's a symbolic number, Revelation's full of symbols. It represents the host of all the believers because then we read about a great multitude that cannot be numbered. I'm a part of that multitude. You're part of that multitude. I'm a Gentile, but Paul says I've been grafted into the body of Christ. Can you say amen to that? We've been grafted in. And so all of this is important. So what you're seeing here, and the reason I bring that Jewish uh, symbolism in is because what you're reading here about the prayers of God's people and the incense, they would have understood the altar of incense and the incense burner implies judgment. This implies judgment. Probably 12, 15 years ago, I preached a message, and I entitled the message, No Lost Person Should Go to Hell in Downriver If You and I Do Our Jobs. No lost person should go to hell in Downriver if you and I do our jobs. In that message, I said, and I said, I'm not trying to be cute, but I want you to follow along with me. I want to kick the hell out of Downriver. I want to kick the things that are tearing families up and destroying lives. I want to kick that out. But it can only happen not by our works. It can only happen by the people of God committed to pray. We like to talk about prayer. But I want to call our attention to the night that tonight to this passage in the book of Revelation because the powerhouse of the church is not my witness. The powerhouse of the church is not my busyness. The power of the church is not our buildings or our organizations or our money. The true power of the church is when the people of God are praying against the powers of evil and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. God 
answers the prayers of his people. But when we're so occupied with praying for ourselves and what we want and our benefit and what brings us joy, when we are concerned about us, 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 and not about the lost people and the community in our world, we have missed the power of what prayer can do. And when we see God's past judgments, God's past judgments are an assurance for our future because I know that when God's people pray, God answers. I see it in, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. But for these saints, it was also an assurance for them their blood was not shed in vain. When Elizabeth Elliot went back to minister to the Aka Indians, she was told over and over, you're going to die. You won't come back. And yet she went back and ministered, raised two children who went back and ministered to the Alka Indians. And today, there is a strong Indian church established among those folks. There are people that sit in comfortable university campuses. There are people who write articles in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and in sophisticated magazines like The Atlantic and The New Yorker of how it's wrong for missionaries to go in and to change the tribal beliefs of other people. That it's wrong for missionaries to go in and to share the good news with them. Friends, let me assure you tonight, nothing could be more right, nothing could be more holy, nothing could be better than to go in and share the good news of Jesus. Jesus Christ that will save and transform a human being's life. Our job is not to go in and try to get them to be Americans or Europeans or Latin Americans or Africans. Our job is just to share Jesus. God delights in the African culture, the Latin culture, the Chinese culture. God delights in that culture. It is not about culture. It is about the born-again experience through Christ Jesus. And so persecution sometimes brings out the very best in us. When I read this, I'm assured that my prayers will never be forgotten. The prayers that I pray for you, the prayers I pray for our community, they'll never be forgotten. Long after I am in heaven, my prayers will still be rising up before the Lord. God will avenge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, he says. For those that have persecuted you, those who have lied about you, those who in the future may persecute you or lie about you for your stand in Christ. It's happened to any of us who have aggressively tried to share our faith or be involved in certain places. As long as I'm a nice guy, everybody likes me. It's when you become a passionate follower of Jesus Christ that people have struggles with you. You see, the call then in Revelation and the call then in the Gospels is to love our enemies. Remember in Revelation chapter 7, this 144,000, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and they wave palm branches. We don't overcome by guns and we don't overcome by power. We overcome by becoming living sacrifices for Jesus Christ, even if it means to the point of death. That's not a political statement about an army or a war, by the way. It's just the call of the church. Your prayer never escapes God's attention. And there's something here I want you to see, and I'm not throwing a rock at anybody, but notice it's your prayers. Notice it's the prayers of the saints. You don't need a mediator to help you get before the Lord. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? So there are first four trumpets royal in nature, and then the last three are upon people. So let's look at those first four trumpets, and then we'll briefly look at 
uh, one of the last three. Number one, God seeks people's attention through judgment. God seeks people's attention through judgment. These first trumpets are all against nature. I think it's appropriate that we look at tonight that even atmospheric weather is under God's control. If you live in California, people are worried about Tornado Alley in the Midwest. I've had people ask me before, do you like living in Tornado Alley? And I said, well, we hardly ever have a tornado in Michigan. But when they think of tornadoes, they think of the middle part of America and them going up. However, I have no desire to live in California. I want to be property in Nevada because one day there's going to be an earthquake. There's a great fault out there. As a matter of fact, that's one of those sophisticated magazines. They have a great article about the shifting of the plates that are taking place in the Pacific Ocean right now against the Oregon coast and what's going to happen when that big earthquake hits and what's going to happen to earthquake and the scientists that write about it. It's pretty amazing to read that kind of stuff. There's something happening in our world tonight. There's a great fault there in, in, the, in, the, in the California that could, if there was an earthquake, could bring major devastation. And if you, yes, the San Andreas Fault, thanks, Dick. And then if you live down in the Gulf Coast area and where Becky and I are from, we've been on the phone with our children all last week, being sure that our family and none of them were being affected by the hurricane. And we're watching what has happened in North Carolina at the torrential rains and the flooding that's taking place. And the worst is yet to come, according to what they're saying, when all the rains reach down. You say, Pastor, why do you bring that up? Because our ability to predict weather isn't the same as being able to control the weather. And we have to be careful. It's kind of like when I teach leadership courses sometimes, I'll ask everybody to hold up their iPhones or their Android phones or their iPads. Some bring their notebook computers in. And we talk about productivity, how to get things done. We talk about the power of list. One of the things that I found out with people is they love the tools and they love to make the list. And some people feel like when they've made the list, the task is done. The task is not done until you've done it and crossed it off the list. They put it on the list and then they forget it. And see, because we think we can predict the weather, we think, well, we're ahead of it. Friends, there are things that are happening in our world tonight that are just astounding. And I don't say this to be dramatic. I have prayed this evening, Lord, help me not to appear to sound dramatic. I just want you to see how these things can come true even when we're not in this great tribulation period yet. Look at Revelation chapter 8 at verse 7 with me. The first angel blew his trumpet. Hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down upon the earth. We've seen that in the Old Testament. We've seen that in modern day history. Fire was probably lightning. I don't, you know, it was, you know, you think about the power of a lightning bolt coming down, a major firestorm, I mean, a, a major forest fire or community. I remember Becky and I were coming across North Dakota one time, and in those days we had a big customized van, and we just pulled off the side of the road on one of those plateaus, and we watched the most spectacular lightning storm that I'd ever seen in my life. And later we were talking to friends out there of how the prairie fires are set ablaze by those things. Imagine what could happen with a tremendous, you know, uh, heaven-sent sort of 
of storm that happened. Hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down upon the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned. And all the green grass was burned. A friend of mine once says, you can't believe this. You just can't believe that could happen. I do. And in a moment, I'll show you how. Just a few reasons that I do. The second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all things living in the sea died. And one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Somebody says, you can't believe that would happen. It can happen. And it will happen. The fact that it, we hope that it doesn't happen in our lifetime, the fact that we hope that it doesn't happen, doesn't change the fact that one day this will happen. The biology and the geology of the earth are under God's control. For example, water. You think about right now in Florida, the algae, the red algae tide that's hitting the coast of Florida, making water undrinkable and killing fish. You remember the algae tide that hit in Lake Erie that made Toledo have to totally shut down because of its water supply. And you say, well, we can explain why that happened. It was the super farms dumping, uh, 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 all the hog farms dumping all of the, their waste into the rivers. And well, sure, we can explain that. But our ability to explain that doesn't negate the fact that many people suffered as a result, and people are suffering in Florida as a result of that tonight. Take, for example, water. If you were to do a Google search of all of the superthermal nuclear weapons that are under the sea tonight on submarines, not only from the United States and Russia, but Great Britain and France, possibly Korea, possibly Israel, possibly Iran, you begin to go, Argentina, you begin to go through this, all of these ships that are on the sea, China now trying to control all of the shipping lanes in the southeast, China's famous necklace of pearls that they have been working for the last 25 years all around the coast of Asia, from Bangladesh all the way around up to Korea so they can control the shipping lanes. Friends, there is a super thermal nuclear war waiting to happen underneath the sea. That if that happened, if there was an accident, remember Chernobyl and what happened there. Google Chernobyl and see how it's still a wasteland today. It's not impossible. And I'm not trying to be dramatic like these movies or these things on Discovery Channel because they often try to show you the horror without showing you the good news. What I want you to see tonight is prayer shapes history. Some of these things are going to happen because the people of God are praying. Some of these things are going to happen because God is going to avenge his people. There will be people that are saved during the Great Tribulation. There will be people that come to know Christ during the Great Tribulation. They will give their lives during the Great Tribulation. They will literally give their lives because the anger, as we will see with the revelation of the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the anger that will happen will become more and more intense. And when the intensity happens, the number one thing that you've got to keep your focus upon is the church doesn't turn to politics. The church doesn't turn to warfare. The church turns to what made the church great in the first place. That was prayer, praise, and worship, and the preaching of the Word, and the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what made the church great. That's what will keep the church great. And that's what will bring the believers through the great tribulation of that time. Can we give him another hand of praise tonight for that? You see, darkness makes life more difficult. Darkness makes life more difficult. 
Do you remember the power outage that we had here where somebody did something in New York that shut down the power grid all the way over to here? Air conditioning was out. Lights were out. I called Becky because Becky and Amy were somewhere up north in Michigan on a mother-daughter trip. And I said, see if you can extend your hotel for three or four more nights. Stay there. Becky called me later that evening on my cell phone and, because I never lost service on my cell phone. And she says, honey, you will not believe there are people parked all over the place. There are people in sleeping bags around the swimming pool because the, the power was out down here in the southeast corner of Michigan and in Ohio. And we were trying to open up here at the church. We were seeing that everybody had water, and it was a very hot time during that time. And we were trying to be sure that everybody was cared for. I remember there was a doctor's wife in our community that I bumped into her while I was out with others helping purchase water for people in our church. And she said to me, Pastor, is this beginning of the Great Tribulation? And I looked at her and I says, nope, because you and I are still here. <laughs> and then I said, if I'm wrong, we're going to make it. <laughs> But we're still here. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet. One third of the sun was struck and one third of the moon and one third of the stars. They became dark and one third of the day was dark and also one third of the night. You see, just imagine I was paying in cash in front of, what's that store? Myers. 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 I was paying in cash because their cash registers and credit card machines wouldn't work without any power. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Now, just imagine if a super volcano went off today. Just imagine if an armed satellite went off in space today with all of our communications. People like me would be hopelessly lost because I depend on my iPhone to get everywhere I'm going. Just imagine what would happen with the fallout from a super volcano erupting. Imagine what would happen from a super thermal nuclear war and the cloud of dust that would hang over us. And then the Bible goes on in verse 13 and talks about an eagle. The eagle means things will get worse. You remember Jesus talked about where the carcass is there, the eagles will gather. This verse is what is about to introduce a demonic horde. And this is where sometimes people really get weird with some of their movies, and I don't recommend watching any of those movies. I've never watched them. I've looked at the trailers. But then they just really try to get weird with this. This is not meant to frighten you. This is not meant to frighten me. I'll say it again. We don't have to be afraid of the devil. We can swing across hell on a rotten cornstalk, spit the devil in the eye, and say, that was kind of a weak thing right there, and say, come on, victory. I mean, you can. What we have to be fearful of is sin, the deceitfulness of sin. Then I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Circle that phrase on your outline tonight, those who belong to this world. It's not talking about the planet. It's talking about the values of the world, the lust of the world, the life of the world. It's talking about a world that's in opposition. And we will see more of that develop as we get to the study of Babylon. The fifth trumpet, and I'm out of time, so I'm going to kind of go through this quickly. Honey, if you'll come on up to the keyboard. Because I do want us to pray. The fifth, the fifth trumpet, human beings are tortured and locusts come. It's kind of a long passage, but I, I want to read it with you. Just write in the word tortured and... and um, 
and we'll keep moving tonight. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to the earth from the sky, and he was given a key, the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, the bottomless pit, is, that's the abode of the beast or the Antichrist before he appears upon the earth. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. The locusts came from the smoke, descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember I talked to you about President Carter. During President Carter's administration, we developed a very powerful bomb. A bomb that would kill people but not destroy buildings. Because we wanted to learn from the mistakes of World War II. And that's a commentary upon the value of human life during the Great Tribulation. They were told, now remember the Christ followers have been sealed. They were told not to kill them, those that had been sealed, but to torture them for five months with pain, not to torture the, the Christ followers. They were told not to kill them, but to torture the, the unbelievers for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. Now this is not the Christians, this is the demonic demon spirits that are attacking lost people. They may do this through people. They may do this through mental anguish or spiritual possession. In those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. I've already showed you how some of this could have been maybe indicating a Persian army. They wore armor made of iron. They had wings that roared like an army of chariots rushing into battles. They had tails that stung like scorpions. In five months, they had the power to torment people. The king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, in Greek, Apollyon. In other words, he's the one that has rule over this pit, the destroyer. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. If you remember, we talked about why does this happen? Because the demons are released to unmask Satan. People are blinded by the enemy. Over and over, the scripture talks about the blindness. People with eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear. Sometimes people who come to church and will sit there and go, I didn't get anything out of it. Or people that will read their Bible and say, I didn't get anything out of it. You see, there is always this warfare to keep us from grasping and understanding. But think about those who don't know Jesus, that they're blinded and they believe that you and I are the enemy. As Mrs. Clinton said during the campaign, evangelicals must be forced to change their opinions about abortion and marriage. I mean, think about that. Think about a senator yesterday, regardless of whether you stand on Judge Kavanaugh's nomination, regardless of whether you, where you stand on, on the, the accusations that Dr. Ford has made against him, regardless of any of that, when a senator from Hawaii says to men, shut up, I've got every right to speak out and speak my mind, this is America. You know, you don't have to agree with me, 
but we don't have to be disagreeable. Does that make sense? And if you don't agree with me on marriage, you don't agree with me on abortion, who do you think you are to say, I'm going to force you to change your mind? Only if there's some sort of spiritual power influencing you because you want to continue to bring darkness. The demons were released on mass Satan to judge sin and to invite people. Their unmasking of Satan will help people to see just how evil he really is. The doctors that have come to know Christ and repented and will no longer perform abortions after they've seen what happens to a baby and they've heard the cries of a baby in the womb. They've seen the baby sucking its thumb. They've seen the baby laughing. The nurses who've made those decisions. The pharmacists who've made those decisions. The bakers who've made decisions not to put messages upon cakes that contradict their convictions. I believe you're beginning to see the end of that. You're beginning to see what's really behind that. The sixth trumpet and I won't take time to, to read through the whole thing, but if you could skip down in the notes to the final paragraph of the scripture verse there, but the people who did not die, there you go, thank you. That was, who's back there? I see you, but I can't recognize you. Janine, thank you, good job. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor talk, walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The summer at Dr. Addison's funeral, I met Dr. Goodluck. Dr. Goodluck is a medical doctor from Nigeria. Somebody that Dr. Addison had led to Christ, discipled. Dr. Goodluck talks about growing up in Nigeria and how his mother would make him go to these meetings. And he says, I would go because there was always plenty of food. He says, but they would bow and worship the idol. And he, used, he said, I used to say to mama, his mother, he said, mama, that's no God. He has to be carried. He has to be washed. He has to be, that's no God, that's a piece of wood. And mama would spank me. But I knew that was no God. And then Dr. Goodluck went on to tell how he'd been reached and how he'd been evangelized. He was on a scholarship to the University of Georgia from Nigeria when he got saved. And can I tell you something? When you get saved, and you're delivered from the stuff he was delivered from, he turned the University of Georgia campus upside down and was witnessing to everybody and preaching on the campus and could not understand why other people were not as excited about Jesus. Dr. Goodluck gave up his medical profession and today pastors a church in Texas, a multi-racial, multi-ethnic church to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Mama never repented because some people refuse to turn. What do we do with this? What do we do with what we've read tonight? Number one, pray for the lost. 
And the number two, I challenge you, get a grip on eternal realities. Let go of the things of this world. Think twice before you compromise. Never envy your persecutors. Never envy the people in this world that look like they're so powerful. I don't care if their name is Trump or Clinton. I want you to remember this. Every time somebody persecutes you, you look to the cross. For Jesus, when he was persecuted and he was tortured and he was scourged, he cursed not, he bore his enemies no ill harm, he prayed, Father, forgive them, they know what they do. He died upon that cross and on the third day he rose again. And I don't know what happened in that time. I don't pretend to understand this part of theology, but the Bible says he descended into hell and he preached the gospel. That's not hell as we know it, it was Hades. He preached the gospel to them. And some of them, when they got resurrected, there was about five, there was a lot of them. They appeared alive walking in Jerusalem. My mind just kind of imagines that they were on their way to heaven, but they decided to stop in and pay a visit and say, I just want you to know I died in faith. Everything's okay. I'm going to heaven. There is a real, real place called heaven that you and I are going to live. Can we give him one more hand of praise tonight? Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> if you've got any questions, Pastor Rick will be glad to answer all of them after the service tonight. I love you, Jesus, and I thank you for this wonderful book. I thank you in September of 1976 when we thought a president was going to make all the difference. God, we were young preachers then. And today, I acknowledge before you what your word, your spirit, and life has taught me. God, no human being is going to solve the problems of this world. But Jesus Christ is truly the answer to each and every need. Make us ready for your soon return, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Good night. Amen. Thank you.